Chapter 28 The lantern swinging from the overhead timber wasn't bright enough to light the entire cabin. The space was too big for it. The rattlesnake yawed gently back and forth as light swept shadows from corner to corner, never shedding illumination on any one thing for more than mere moments. Finn felt small in the room. It was the captain's cabin, her cabin, ever since the mutiny against Creech, and still she felt too small to fill it. She had been comfortable when she berthed with the crew. Their company and conversation had always been dear to her. She missed the closeness of Tan's friendship, of Nut always sleeping nearby or dallying in his madness, of Topper complaining about food, of a dozen other murmuring voices humming her to sleep like a lullaby. But here, in her place of honor, the captain's quarters, she felt the quietness, and it was lonely. The fiddle case on the table in front of her had been repaired, its splintered lid fashioned back into shape by a man named Tillam, one of the prisoners of the justice who had proven himself an able ship's carpenter. She thumbed the latches open and propped the lid. A shadow threw itself across the contents, and the lantern light would not swing far enough to expose them. Finn's hands found their way by memory. They lifted the delicate violin by the neck and body and brought it out of the case. She held it close to her face. Scents of oil and wood filled her head. She plucked the strings and their long, untuned voices whispered back in the half-light. The cleft of her neck welcomed its old companion. She took up the bow and drew a halting note into the air. The instrument was painfully out of tune. She turned a peg and plucked a string, then adjusted the peg some more. For several minutes she alternately plucked and adjusted. First a note was too high then too low, then too high again. She'd done this all a hundred times. It should have come so naturally, but she couldn't seem to find the right notes. Frustration flushed her face red and she took a deep breath. She slowed down and tried to remember how she'd been taught. Bartimaeus's face came to her, smiling and creased. She saw his brittle old fingers dance across the fingerboard as he played. The memory calmed her frustration somewhat and fueled her determination to get the instrument into tune. She tried again. Too high. Too high. Just right? No. Too low. Too high. Her anger rose again. She gritted her teeth and had to stop herself from flinging the violin across the room. She put it back into its case and cursed. Then she let her fingers remember Betsy. She lifted it out of the shadows, and as she had done with the violin, she held it close to her face. Gunpowder. Acrid. Sweet. She loved the scent of it. She tightened down the thumbscrew on the flint and locked back the hammer. Then, squeezing the trigger, she gently set the hammer back down with her thumb. The old blunderbuss still worked like a faithful friend, and it would need to work a while longer yet. Bartimaeus's face came to her again. No smile this time. Rather, a grimace of pain. Maybe of fear. Terrible things he whispered, and Finn shuddered. She placed Betsy back into her cradle and shut the lid. Captain Bettany had not agreed to her condition. He did, however, agree to convey her terms to his superiors in Charleston. He dismissed them, and Fred Martin piloted them in a rowboat back to the Rattlesnake, where they found the rest of the crew waiting. Despite Fred's multiple attempts at conversation along the way, Topper refused to acknowledge him and they suffered the brief boat ride in silence. Armand clearly had words for Finn, 
but it seemed he had yet to find the proper time or place to let them be heard, and so he too was silent. The crew greeted them with questions, but Finn put them off, saying only that they were to sail immediately for Charleston to refit and recrew. They were underway in an hour and expected to arrive in Charleston before noon on the following day. Unable to sleep in the oppressive silence of her quarters, or to busy herself with music, Finn descended to the ship's surgery to check on Jack. His fever still had hold of him. His face glittered with sweat in the dim light, and his trembling shook the bed. She wetted a cloth and wiped his face. Jack flinched away from her but didn't wake. The bed coverings were soaked with sweat, and through the urine smell of his fever she noted the faint reek of rot. She plucked the lantern from the wall and shone it upon the wound. The bandages tied around his calf were also soaked through, but with blood, not sweat. What troubled her most, however, was the sickly color of the skin running up his leg past his giant knee. His breeches had been cut off around the thigh, and the visible skin had turned a horrible yellow and was shot through with dark black and green. The stench came from his leg. He needed that doctor, and soon. As she reached to hang the lantern back on its hook, she nearly tripped over something. She looked down to find Nut asleep on the deck at the foot of the bed. She was glad she hadn't woken him. For Nut's sake, if no other, she prayed Jack could be mended. Jack was the bulwark that often kept Nut safe from the cruelty of the crew. Finn also tried to protect him, but she didn't command the same authority that Jack did. Nut wasn't the only one that had need of him, though. She'd committed to a course of action that she'd scarcely begun to consider the complexity of, and she needed Jack's help to see her through it. She placed the lantern back on its hook and climbed the ladder to the main deck. The night was clear, and a steady wind eased their way. The men on watch were quiet and didn't disturb her. She made her way up to the poop deck and leaned over the edge of the rail to watch their wake curl and seethe behind them. It is... A great risk, Cherie, Armand's voice. He was sitting in the crook of the railing, one knee up, his eyes raised to her. And that bothers you? He didn't answer right away, and Finn didn't care. Finn wasn't even sure why he was still with them. He had promised her his help, but only so far as his own revenge would take him, and he seemed to have gained that with the death of Creech. He had no reason to remain, unless the temptation of a full pardon was one he indulged. He didn't strike Finn as the sort of man that cared for pardon, though. He was the sort that would rather be hidden away and chased after. Why did you want Creech dead? she asked. Armand raised his misshapen hand into the moonlight and spread his fingers. There were only small stumps where the ring finger and little finger had been. He curled what was left of his hand into a fist and withdrew it without speaking. Why did he do it? asked Finn. Because something was taken from him, he answered, now looking at her. Something he did not wish to part with. Something he would do anything to get back. Bart's gold? It is no matter, Cherie. We do what we must to take back what is lost. He stood and bent close to her. Whatever you have lost must be precious to you. You gamble our souls to regain it. Finn opened her mouth, but had no answer she was willing to admit. 
to contend upon the Barbary coast? I tell you that we must match them in barbaric deed and cut without mercy. Else I fear you have doomed us, Shari. And this thing we intend, this rescue, this countess, it will see the end of our days. I didn't ask you to come. You're welcome to leave when we reach Charleston. Indeed, or I would not be here, (laughs) he replied with a grin. But I will go with you. You are not the only one who has lost. We must all seek an end. What is that supposed to mean? asked Finn. But he was already walking away, and she had no desire to follow. She didn't trust him, and yet she acted as if she did. She had accepted his help in the dark of the justice's hold. He'd helped them escape to Ebenezer, and he'd even played a part in saving Nut's life and ending Creech's. She couldn't account for him. The man was twisted and evil, but he continually found ways to make himself useful. And there was no denying that a man of his nature had his uses. Though she was loath to admit it, the promise of his assistance was a comfort, especially since Jack wasn't around. When the sun came up, the familiar sight of Charlton's wharves greeted them. The wind had made quick work of the night's travel and by noon they were at anchor along the pier and ready to disembark. Finn sent orders through Topper to convene the crew in the galley for instructions before being permitted ashore, and in short order the men had all assembled. She entered the crew's mess and Topper banged on the table. Captain on deck, he shouted, and Finn glared at him. Before you go ashore, you need to know why we're here. The Congress has asked for our help. Eyebrows variously raised or lowered depended upon the owner's surprise or skepticism. They've offered each of us a full pardon for all crimes and offenses if we're successful. This information wasn't received happily. The men were wise enough to know that such a reward carried a heavy price. Finn calmly removed a parchment from her coat and placed it on the table. Topper set a pen and inkwell beside it. I can't tell you anything more, but any man wishing to come must sign his name here. Finn made no mention of the possibility that her terms may not be met and they all might be hung. Whether you sign or whether you go, I ask that you keep the matter to yourselves. I'd rather loose tongues didn't entertain English ears. Topper signed his name first, and then Armand. A line formed and nearly all the men aboard signed their names. Finn was reminded of the day they signed the Round Robin. That signing had made them criminals and this one may yet deem them otherwise. When the room had emptied, Topper read over the parchment and counted the names. Huh, twenty-eight, he said. That's all but seven. That's a fair number. The door to the mess swung open, and Captain Bettany stepped inside with an escort of Marines. Without waiting to be recognized or greeted, the captain spoke. I will meet with my contact within the hour to discuss your terms. Until I return, you, Captain Button, He sneered as he said the word captain. We'll be in the company of my men and will not leave the ship. Finn, though far from happy about his rudeness, had no argument to offer. Captain Bettany turned and left. I'll be glad to be rid of that bugger, grumbled Topper. I'll be fine here till he gets back, said Finn, waving her hand at Topper and Armand. Well, I'll spread word that the snake's hiring crew, and I'll make arrangements for supplies. 
Thanks, Topper. Don't know what I'd do without your help, you know that? Ain't nothing, Finn. I just hope we make it back to see that pardon. I had enough of piratin'. Well, make sure you don't let on about the pardon in town. We'll be overrun if word gets out. Aye, Captain, he said with a wink, and then left. Armand appraised the soldiers left to guard her. I should stay, Cherie. This captain is not a man I trust. Finn disagreed. It was Armand she didn't trust. I'm fine. Go with Topper. Armand bowed slightly and dismissed himself, leaving her alone with the Marines. Almost alone. She'd forgotten Nut, as usual. He was sitting quietly in a corner, trying to look inconspicuous and succeeding. What do you think of all this, Nut? she asked. Nut started and looked around to confirm that she was speaking to him and not to some other Nut in the room. About what, Finn? Oh, never mind. About the other ocean? I've been there. Long time ago. Been to lots of places. The Mediterranean? Finn ought not to have been surprised. After all, it was on a passage from Africa that Nut had been made the way he was, made simple by Creech's wrath, beaten until his mind had been shattered. Why are we going there, Finn? We have to help somebody, Nut, and then we can come home for good. Nut seemed to like that explanation, and his face brightened. She ought to put him off the boat here in Charleston rather than drag him with her into danger, but she was too selfish to let him go. He was one of the few things that made her life tolerable. He didn't expect or demand anything from her. She was no captain in Nut's eyes and no criminal. She was merely herself, merely his friend. He grinned and picked at his ear, and she smiled. Finn sat down at the table and looked over the parchment, counting the names and reading each one under her breath. Twenty-eight people, willing to follow her on an impossible mission, half a world away. She hoped they hadn't signed their own death warrants. She folded the parchment up and tucked it inside her vest. Nut, would you go to my cabin and get a piece of paper? She asked. He nodded and left the room. She would write to Peter. Their time in Ebenezer had been so brief that she'd had no time for explanations. He deserved to know what was going on, and he deserved to know that when this was over, she'd be back, back home, back to stay. Nut returned with the paper and laid it on the table. He sat down in his corner to watch Finn write. Had anyone else sat and stared at her like that, she'd have been self-conscious or insulted. But it was Nut's strange way, and she was accustomed to it. In the letter, she told Peter all about Creech and the Justice, all about Bartimaeus's map and her unlikely captaincy. She pleaded with him to give her apologies to the sisters for the way they and the children had been treated and she promised enough money to repair the chapel floor twice over when she returned. She wrote of how she'd missed him, and how she longed to see again the home they'd built. Finally, she told him of their plans to cross the Atlantic, and her hope of pardon and peace upon return. As she wrote, she found that she continually assured him that she'd be back, and that she dreamed of coming home, but she only half believed it. She had more to say, but the paper hadn't the space to hold it. She thought of asking Nut to fetch her another sheet of paper, but he was napping in the corner and she chose not to wake him. There would be time enough for writing later, she thought, and she tucked the unfinished letter into her pocket. Just as he had promised, Captain Bettany returned within the hour and was accompanied by a small man, no taller than Finn, with tiny spectacles and fair skin. Upon his back was slung a patched sack filled to bursting 
with what must have been, by the strain exhibited on the man's face, something very heavy. Captain Bettany directed him to unburden himself, and he dropped the sack to the deck. Several books tumbled out, and the man muttered under his breath while he bent over and tucked them back into the bag and then retied it. Well, she said. The captain motioned toward the small man. This is Dr. Lucas Thiggum. Dr. Thiggum fidgeted with something in his pocket and pulled out a handkerchief to scrub his spectacles clean. When he was satisfied that they could be seen through once more, he worked them back onto his face and extended a quivering hand toward Finn. Uh, a pleasure, Captain, he stammered. Finn shook his hand, nodded, and tried to offer a smile. I trust this satisfies your condition, asked Captain Bettany. Dr. Thiggum, one of my crew needs your help as soon as possible. Finn didn't have a clue how to discover whether a doctor was worth his salt or not, but she'd find out soon enough. certainly Show me to him and I'll see what can be done. The doctor's eyes flitted all about the room as he spoke, never meeting Finn's. He had his hands back in his pockets now and was bouncing on the balls of his feet like a nervous child. A few details, Captain, and I'll be on my way. Captain Bettany drew a wallet of papers from his coat and placed one upon the table in front of him. This is a letter of acquisition. The Congress will fund the fitting of your ship and resupply of rations. Simply show the document to any merchant here in Charleston, and the matter will be taken care of. He withdrew another document from the wallet and placed it on the table. This is a likeness of the Countess and a collection of personal information that you must use to ensure you procure the correct person. Finn wrinkled her brow in confusion. One never knows what treachery may present itself. Be wary. Then he withdrew the final paper and placed it on the table. These are your delivery instructions. Should you succeed, you will sail to La Havre de Grasse. Do not attempt to return to France's southern coast. The Pasha's fleet will be upon you. You must make for Gibraltar with all haste. Once through the strait, you will be safe. The Pasha's fleet is too small to contend with the Atlantic, and you will easily be lost to him. To La Havre, you understand? La Havre, replied Finn. Inside this envelope are your instructions upon reaching Le Havre. They will lead you to your contact who will direct you in the delivery of the Countess. Follow these directions precisely. To do otherwise is to forfeit your success. He looked at her, studying her face for any doubt or question. And our pardons? Finn asked. She handed Captain Bettany the parchment, listing the names of her crewmen. He studied it and then tucked it into his coat. They will be delivered to La Havre, where you will receive them upon the success of your mission. A messenger will depart for England tonight, with word of your deaths at sea. In a month's time, you will be dead to the world, Captain. Use your anonymity wisely. Then we're finished, said Finn. Once you have filled out your crew, send me their names as well. My ship will wait offshore for your departure. Once you're underway, we will give chase and harry you with cannon then returned to Charleston with news of your sinking. He paused and considered her, almost as if he felt he were required to, and then added, Good luck, Captain. I shall pray for your success. Without any further formality, he left. Beside her, Lucas Thiggum squirmed in his shoes. The patient, Captain? Follow me. She couldn't imagine where they had dug the man up. When she conjured the image of a doctor in her mind, what she saw was very nearly the opposite of Lucas Thiggum. 
He wasn't tall, confident, well-dressed, in control, or even very clean. She'd always thought of doctors as members of the upper class, something Dr. Thigham didn't appear to belong to. Hard as she tried, she couldn't think of a single place where the nervous little man would look at home, or even mildly comfortable. He looked out of joint with everything about him and seemed painfully aware of his own peculiarity. As they approached Jack's bed, the rotten smell of his leg was the first thing to greet them. Sweat-soaked blankets were strewn about, and Jack had torn his shirt open in his fever. His chest, neck, and face all glistened with sweat, and tremors racked his sleep. Oh, dear, said the doctor, whether in terror of the task before him or in genuine concern, Finn was not sure. He stooped over Jack and felt his sweaty forehead, neck, and chest, then scrubbed his hand on his coat to dry it. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear, he repeated to himself under his breath. He examined the lag and sniffed of it cautiously. Oh, dear. Nut slunk in the door behind Finn and deposited the doctor's hulking bag on the ground beside the bed. The doctor ignored Nut and squatted next to his bag. He plundered around inside it, first taking out a large book and scowling at it in disappointment, then drawing out a long metal saw to consider for a bit, then producing a small box filled with something that rattled when he shook it. He fretted over the box and listened to its rattling closely, before replacing it into the bag and digging around some more. He continued to inspect the contents of his bag for several minutes more, producing all sorts of strange curios a bottle of beans, a strange pair of spectacles with what appeared to be a spyglass attached where each lens would normally be, a stuffed marmot, a great many books, even a human skull that was, for some reason, painted blue. At last, he pulled a pair of scissors from his bag of endless oddity and exclaimed, Goodness! Dr. Thigham returned to Jack's bandaged leg and began cutting the dressings away. Jack jerked and moaned in his fevered sleep. With each moan and jerk, Thigham glanced fearfully around the room as if he were scouting out an escape route, should the affair turn to his disadvantage. When he'd finished, he carefully pulled the bloody dressings away from the wound. Finn had seen men killed and maimed, but she'd never had to stand in peace and look upon the scarlet ruin a body could endure. Her stomach rolled over and she nearly vomited. But her curiosity quickly took over, and she found herself fascinated with the doctor's work. The stump wasn't clean and neatly severed, as she'd imagined it would be. Instead, it was ragged. Flesh hung in clumps and splinters of bone jutted out at angles. Instead of being red and bloody, the leg had soured into a mottled, pus-ridden milk of gray-green and black. The smell was almost unbearable. Oh, dear, oh, dear, said Dr. Thigham. He scratched his pate in apprehension. This man will die, I'm afraid he said and stared at his feet. The blood drained from Finn's face. What? she yelled. The doctor took off his spectacles and fidgeted with them. What do you mean, he's going to die? Isn't that what you're here to fix? Thigham shook his head back and forth and stared at his feet. No, 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 I can't. He's too far. I wonder he's not dead already. But he isn't. He isn't dead. He's alive and you best keep him that way. Finn stepped forward and jabbed at the man's shoulder with her finger. I'll tell you what, I don't know who you are or what kind of doctor you claim to be, but mind me, Mr. Thigham, if Jack dies, I will have you keel-hauled, flogged, and thrown overboard. With each word she said, Lucas Thigham looked increasingly distressed and staggered backward. Oh, dear. Oh, please, Captain. His leg is soured. 
Perhaps if I'd been here a week ago, but now, uh, he trailed off and resumed his, oh dears. Until he's well and back to himself, you don't leave this room. You eat here, you sleep here, you live here. Do you understand me, doctor? Lucas Stigham didn't answer. He stared at his feet and fiddled with his spectacles. Finn jabbed him in the shoulder again. Hey, she shouted, do you hear? He pushed up his spectacles and kicked his heel. The leg will have to be cut again. Hot water and fresh dressings and, well, someone to hold him down. Nut, get whatever he needs. While Nut loped out of the surgery, Finn considered the problem of restraining Jack. One did not simply hold down 300 pounds of Jack wagon. She crossed the room to a stowage locker and retrieved a hank of rope. She passed one end under the bed and fed it up between the frame and bulkhead, then pulled it over the top of the bed and settled it across Jack's chest. She pulled it tight and tied it off, securing Jack's upper body to the bed. Then she did the same with two more ropes across his middle and thighs. It was crude, but it was the only way she could manage to restrain Jack's size by herself. The rest of the crew were already ashore, and she didn't want to waste time by sending Nut after them. The doctor ignored her labors and offered no help, while he rummaged through his bag and muttered under his breath. Nut returned with a kettle of steaming water from the galley and a handful of old towels and underbreeches to use for dressings. As soon as Nut set the kettle down beside the bed, Dr. Thigham tossed a bone saw, a scalpel, and an assortment of other instruments into the water. When he was satisfied with the contents of his bag and the kettle, he turned to Finn. Oh, I'm sure he'll pass out from the pain after moments, but until then he may be most unpleasant. Then, without waiting for acknowledgement, he snatched a scalpel from the bowl and placed it just above Jack's knee. Oh, dear, said Lucas Thigham. He began cutting and Jack came alive like an angry bull. Finn had assumed that the ropes alone would do the job. She was mistaken. Jack howled every sort of curse ever formed and jerked against his restraints hard enough that the bed frame was in danger of snapping in half. Finn leapt on top of him and yelled for Nut to help. As she tried her best to wrestle Jack to the bed, the doctor yelled, Oh, dear! Oh, my! loud enough to be heard even over Jack's screaming. The doctor dropped the scalpel into the kettle and took up his bone saw. Finn couldn't see the work, but she could hear it, and she didn't think Jack was overreacting one bit. Each time the saw ran forward, a wet, crunchy zip induced spasms of pain in Jack, and still he didn't pass out. His eyes bulged, angry and white from their sockets, his face twisted and convulsed. The skin under his beard turned first white, then red, then deep purple. Finn was terrified to see tears streaming from Jack's wide-open eyes. She hadn't thought Jack capable of tears, and yet here they were. The doctor's arm sped to its work, and the blade continued its zipping. Jack gave up his cursing and a wordless, harrowing wail came out of his mouth, a sound scarcely human. Then, at last, Jack fell back to the pillow and went silent. Finn heard a dull thump as something hit the floor. It was a piece of Jack. She stared at the amputated partial limb in horror. Five minutes ago it had been part of someone. It had been kicking around alive, and now it was twelve inches of dead meat and bone lying on the floor. Dr. Thigham had sweated through his clothing and looked like he'd been dunked in the ocean. He continued to work over the leg, pulling the skin down and stitching it together over the stump with a needle and thread. Carefully, 
Finn climbed off Jack's chest. Her head spun and she stumbled. She caught herself on Nut's shoulder, then staggered toward the door and let herself out into the fresh air. All she could think was that after going through all that hell, Jack deserved to live. No one should have to endure that and still die. She leaned against the bulkhead and slid down to the deck. A few minutes later, Dr. Thiggum emerged. His clothes were stained dark red from neck to foot. Had he not been small and bespectacled, he'd have looked like the devil himself. It's done, but he will almost certainly die. The sour leg has poisoned him. He should be dead already. But he wasn't dead already, and Finn clung to that. He had already lived through more than most men could endure. Surely he could endure a little more. Thank you, Doctor. Doctor.